Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, I'm joined by Barry Cadigan, aka Little Barry. Not only one of the most talented and well-respected guitarists around, having played with Primal Scream, Johnny Marr, The The, Steve Mason, Texas, and of course, Paul Weller, he also fronts his own band, Little Barry, whose sound is an exciting blend of rock, blues, soul, funk, pop, and so much more. If you haven't yet heard them, you have to listen. The band have supported Paul on numerous occasions, so we'll talk about that, and played on Paul's albums and live with him at various points as well. So let's get into it. Barry Cadigan, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having us. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you, Um, not least because I've treated myself to something during lockdown. Let me show you. Um, I think you'll appreciate this. So I've never, ever learned to play this thing. Here we go. Great. I've had that two weeks and I can't play a note. I've no idea what I'm doing. How much effort, how much work do I need to put into this thing before I become a guitar wizard like yourself? Well, I don't know if I'm a guitar wizard, but the, end, the only advice I could give you, which is what a good friend said to me, this is a good way to, to go about learning probably anything really, is practice little but often is better than maybe, you know, say a day on the weekend where you do three hours and you don't get to play again till even if it's 10 minutes a day, five minutes a day even, or 50 minutes, whatever you can do, little and often is good. And I think there's a lot more ways to learn now with YouTube and whatever you know. There's a little app I've got, yeah, that came with it. It's a Fender and a little app that came with it. Yeah, I think you're right. Like for 10 minutes a day, start understanding how your fingers work and things like that. And then in 20 years time, I'll be able to play, right? Uh, you'll be able to pick it up quicker than that. <laughs> the good thing as well is, is trying to learn something that's simple that you can relate to and you like the sound of straight away. Like the first book I got when I played guitar, my first guitar was like a Spanish, you know, just a nylon string acoustic guitar. And I got a book and it had some simple chords in it, but the songs were all pretty. They're almost like old sort of like Boy Scout 
girl guide kind of songs like you know he's got the whole world in his hands and this kind of right. stuff and you know when you want to try and play a bit of rock and roll it's sort of like this but you know even something simple that means something to you it's funny i've got a similar looking guitar right here right? looks similar oh but something simple even like peter gunn just something simple or a Something dead, something that you that you can relate to straight away, that you can learn quite quickly. Learn something simple that you like the sound of. That's great advice. Now I have to ask, when was it you first picked up one of those? Then, so when was that that you started um, going? Oh, I'd like to do this. I got my first guitar just before Christmas, nineteen eighty nine, and the reason I wanted a guitar was I was inspired by my older sister's record collection, and the album that did it for me was Stone Roses. Right. And how old would you have been then? I was fourteen. How quickly did you get into going? Okay, well, I want to do this. I want to. I want to be a. I want to make a band, man. <laughs> well, I mean, I was into music anyway, but I think, you know, that age when you've, maybe it happens to people at different ages, but being 14, and I guess when you're a teenager, you're starting to get into your own things and maybe not just following what everybody else is doing or whatever, but having an older sister who was into music, I mean, the whole family was sort of into music really, but my sister being a bit older, going to college, going to gigs, buying records, and that record was just on all the time. And I just sort of, I kept hearing it and then I was listening to it with her and then she'd leave the record out for me to listen to, you know. Yeah, I got my first guitar and I reckon after about six months, I just thought I want to do this, you know, but I didn't have any idea how to go about that. I just sort of fell in love with it, really. I couldn't really think about anything else after that. And am I right in thinking your band, Little Barry, started off with you solo? I'm presuming, obviously, the Barry bit must come from you. I can't think where else that would come from. But Yeah, it did. There were some really good musicians in Nottingham, though. You know, so I got a lot of inspiration from good musicians in Nottingham and also a lot of friends are into records. It was quite a good community of people because we knew people older than us maybe have more records, you know, broader record collections. Yeah, before I did the Little Barry thing, I was playing an instrumental band called Polska with three of the guys who are now in the Sound Carriers. I went to school with two of those guys, you know, so we played together for years and they were a really good influence on me. I think I improved a lot as a player by playing with Pish and Adam, the bass player and drummer. I wanted to do something a little bit different and something, keeping a kind of groove element in it, but something a little bit more rock and roll from the guitar front, I guess. So I started writing songs and that's when I started trying to sing and stuff because I didn't sing before and I just started doing it because I just thought I could be self-sufficient that way and you know it was pretty flawed at the time and still is but <laughs> that's how I started just called Little Barry because Little Barry was a nickname I got from a mate of mine's dad my mate Dan Roberts his dad Pete Dan lived just down the road and his dad called us Little Barry one day and it just sort of stuck really there was um, somebody on Twitter King Truman on Twitter reminded me that when you guys were in the States with Paul Weller there was like an American radio session and the the, the presenter the DJ asked why you were called Little Barry and Paul said it's because he's Barry and he's little <laughs> I forgot about that yeah I'm quite little yeah so that's uh, sometimes people you don't look little but yeah I'm little now um, obviously this is the Paul Weller fan podcast and we're going to dip into a lot of your music and the connections with Paul throughout this conversation when was it you first became aware of the music of Paul Weller when I was a kid because the jammer on the radio I remember things being hits like Town Club Madison what year was going underground single would have been 1980 early 1980 yeah so so yeah I would have, I remember that but my dad liked the jam so if the jammer on the radio he would turn it up brilliant good taste <laughs> oh so, so yeah so I, I first knew who Paul Weller was from from being very young and I, I remember some of the hits, yeah. And seeing him on Top of the Pops. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I miss Top of the Pops. There's no real big mu- music shows, apart from Jules Holland. That's about it now, right? I know, it's weird, isn't it? There's no sort of, no sort of live shows. No, no, no outlet like that. So the early life of Little Barry coincides with you meeting Paul for the first time. So this is even before your first album. You meet yeah, Paul. Yeah, we're doing 45s and singles. Yeah. And, and this is an intro from Simon Dine. Am I right in thinking? Yeah. 
I hadn't met Simon at this point, but Lewis had. So I think that's how one of our records maybe got to Paul or something like that, or I don't know. I'd have to check that story with Lewis, actually, because Lewis ran a record department in the shop Merck on Carnaby Street. He, he worked in Merck. I used to, when I first came to London, yeah, RIP Merck, I have to say. What a great shop. I don't know if Paul went in the shop at one point as well. I'd, I'd have to check with Lewis on the proper story, but... Lewis worked in there and I worked in a vintage guitar shop on Denmark Street. And we were meeting musicians, you know, people coming in. We met a lot of people quite quickly. And Lewis was already in London, so he knew quite a lot of people. And he was DJing and stuff, you know, on weekends. And, and that's how we got started. But yeah, we didn't release the album until it was 2005 or maybe four or five, the first one. But we, yeah, we'd done a bunch of 45s on the gig. What was the first support slot with Paul then? Was it Hyde Park? Because that seems like a massive gig to start off with. Right? No, I think some before that. I can't remember what order they were in, but one of the first ones might have been somewhere like Folk or Hastings. He offered us like maybe three or four support slots on a tour. I think he was giving us, you know, slots out to different bands and stuff. Yeah. I remember us going down to the South Coast and doing one, you know, with our sort of primitive setup of band gear, you know, like cymbal stands in those checkered beach bags, you know, no proper cases or transit van job. Yeah. You mentioned the jam. There's a similarity between, so the three piece, but the amount of noise that you can create as a three piece throughout is immense. Yeah, it is an interesting thing, a trio, isn't it? It's, it sort of makes you work in a different way. I like playing in bigger bands as well when the music's right for it, but um, I was like the idea of a trio in some ways. Probably, yeah, you know, I love the jam, but also probably because of things like the Hendrix experience and Cream, stuff like that. But it sort of works in a different way. Sometimes you work with a different dynamic in a different space in a smaller group. Yeah, Rick Buckler, when he was on, talked about the fact that they always they always wanted to sound like they were a four-piece, like the energy, the noise as a three-piece. It's interesting when you're in a band where it's just one guitar rather than two. I mean, you can have a real magic when you get two guitars, when it's two people who have a real chemistry. But when it's one guitar, you, or, you know, you might have a four-piece band where there's a lead singer and a guitar player, say like the Stone Roses or, or the Who or something, you know. Mm. It's a different thing to when you've got two guitars. The guitar tends to work in a different way. Or like, you know, Dr. Phil with like Wilco, you know, it's like, it's like it's a different thing when it's a single guitar player. What do you about, remember about those early times then and supporting Paul on those on those venues? Because, I mean, when you get to Hyde Park, I mean, that was Roots of Kings. That was a massive thing. That was, what was that, 2002? So this is around Illumination time, I think, from Paul Weller. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when we did the gig supporting Paul, we'd never played to an audience that big. I mean, sometimes when you support it, not everyone's in the hall or whatever, you mm. know, so sometimes you're playing to a half empty or even more empty room. But yeah, we hadn't experienced anything on that scale, you know, so we were pretty naive, really. You know, I remember we turned up and one of the crews said, oh, where's your sound guy? You know, and we were like, we haven't got one. We can't afford one, you know. But his, his crew sort of looked after us. I think we might have given them a bit of money, but we didn't really have those resources. But they looked after us, actually. You know, So it was quite an eye-opener, you know, in a lot of ways. And it's different when you're supporting because a lot of people, they're just not there to see you. That can be a bit of an experience sometimes as well. And presumably you end up having a good relationship because there's so many connections that come following this. But th- did that come straight away where you're kind of getting on with Paul and you feel like you're part of the crew or did that come later? Well, he was really nice to us and his crew were nice to us. We didn't actually get to see Paul that regularly. You know, we did those gigs and then he offered us the Hyde Park one, which was great, you know, because we haven't played anything like that outdoors or like that before at all. I guess he sort of kept us in mind and, and maybe that's how I ended up doing a few more things later on down the line. But it was a great experience for us. Yeah, we had some good gigs. I think we supported him at the NEC in Birmingham. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was pretty big and we played with him at Wembley Arena and stuff. You know, maybe first band on and maybe not a lot of people in the door but these are still things that mean a lot to you you know and not soon afterwards that first album comes out and I was listening to it the other day again um, so We Are Little Barriers that first album and your sound seems to me as it's evolved so much since then you listen to it and you go oh yeah this was like this was a couple of years ago and it's like we were talking about I mean it's nearly 20 years ago right <laughs> 
it's, it's over 20 years since the first single came out, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's mental. This feels like such a short time period to me. That evolution, that's a natural thing, or is that an, an, something in your mind of kind of wanting to kind of move in different directions continuously or change the sound up and stuff? Both, really, I suppose, at the same time. You know, it's, I mean, maybe some groups do sort of have a sound and stick with it for whatever reason. Maybe that they just think that's them or whatever. But, you know, for myself and definitely so Lewis or, or whatever, you know, we've always been into lots of different sorts of music. It's like with the record collection, you might be delving into one sort of genre or a few certain things at a certain time that really mean something to you. You don't always know why, but also new things you want to explore. You know, we, we were discovering a lot of new music. And me moving to London and all that, we were discovering new things by meeting people who maybe their record collections were more geared towards something else or their interests and meeting other interesting guitar players and stuff like that, you know. So it was quite natural to want to move things and, and go somewhere that felt like something different. It, it wasn't a forced thing, like we have to change all the time. Or it was just a natural, I guess, a bit of a natural urge to get into new things, really. And how much of it's driven by you working, bringing the stuff into the studio versus a collaboration with, with the three of you as a band? What's tended to work for most of the band's lifetime is a lot of it's down to time because we don't have the luxury of time to be able to get together five days a week and just do the band. You know, it's, it's, we just don't have that. So a way that's more efficient use of time I'll sometimes come up with a rough idea, make a rough demo and then play it to Lou or whoever we're working with. And then we would turn it into a song. That was just a better use of time because say if you book a rehearsal room, if you've got an idea and I'm still working right and everyone else is sitting around waiting for you to, that's just not good use of time. You're better off coming in with something, even if you learn it and then pull it to bits and change it completely. Mm. You have to, I found a more structured way like that has been more a better use of time really. Paul's been doing that for, for obviously for, for decades now. Oh, we have to talk about the album 22 Dreams. So this is, I mean, one of my favourite Paul Weller albums. It's right up there for me, this huge kind of sprawling, beautiful double album recorded at Black Barn Studios in Ripley. And you really get that sense of Black Barn because it's, you know, it's on the cover of the album. It, it kind of, he talked a lot about recording this through the course of a year at Black Barn and the changing seasons and stuff. So you guys are there on, on the track the title track 22 dreams and the little reprise that comes later on what do you remember about those recording sessions and how did they come about i don't exactly remember how they come about and maybe i don't know if we were contacted as the band or our manager richard got a message but when we were asked if we wanted to play on a track on the album we were just like yeah absolutely and then the session was booked we hadn't heard the track before we got down to the studio paul tended to prefer to do that he was like just come down you know so we get down to the studio and it was myself lewis and billy skinner on drums the three of us got down there. they already had a track up and running where i think they had some kind of maybe like a drum loop and some of the instruments have been put on there and paul had done a guide vocal and they wanted us to play along to the track they'd already sort of had up like the framework of the track and we started doing that but it felt kind of weird playing along to drums that were already there and things like this. I think we found it quite hard. There was a good friend of ours, our friend Tony Upridyard, who was down at the session with us. Tony was an old old friend of mine, but also became like guitar tech and tour manager for us when we were doing tours, especially in Europe and in the UK. Tony was down at session with us. And to Tony's credit, he just said, why don't you just cut one live? And Paul went, yeah, all right. So then Paul came into the live room with us and made a little vocal booth. So then we were tracking it without the backing track they'd already right, created. Cool. Yeah. Just built it from scratch. And it was so much easier for us to get into it then rather than play along to drum loops and, and bass that was already there. I mean, that's not easy for rhythm section. Maybe that's something we hadn't done before. But when we started playing it just as a guide thing with Paul singing, that's when it starts to happen. And the track was built around that. Paul's talked about it taking like a while to pull together. So I guess that's that. But did, was it one day job and done? How did yeah, I yeah, it's been in a day. Yeah, I think we turned up about sort of late morning or midday. We must have tried for a while playing along to the backing track. And then hopefully Tony suggested doing it live. And I think that just 
that was just a more natural vibe for us. And then Paul seemed into it because he was doing putting a vocal down as we were doing it. And then we didn't do any overdubs. I don't think I overdubbed any extra guitar. Paul might have done some guitar at some point. And then other things like the horns and stuff were done on a later day. We tracked it pretty basic. And then we didn't hear it again until it was finished. But it, it was a good day. Yeah, it was an amazing day. And we stayed there. Stayed there all day. And Paul took us for dinner with his family and his folks were there and stuff. It was a really, really amazing day. It was fantastic. Amazing. And a very special studio. Was that, that was your first time at Blackburn, presumably? was, yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it's amazing to, to be somewhere like that, you know. And uh, Obviously, there's things in the studio you see that you recognise, maybe a guitar or you know, instruments or, you know, it, it was, it's just a really nice studio. And people were lovely, like Charles's engineer and stuff. It was a really great day. Now, again, this feels like yesterday, and I realise I'm asking you questions of quite a long time period has passed from this, but did you, at that point, how much out of the album were you aware of existing already? Was this kind of early on? Because obviously, it's, this is the name of the album, but was that an early thing, do you know? I haven't got any idea how far into the album Paul was when we were doing that track um, so we didn't hear any of it until it was released so I don't know if he had the rest of the album in the camera or, or, or what I've got no idea so, so we just went down it's like we're doing this track we didn't hear any other tracks that day you know, we just worked on that one and just played it till it felt right I think. it's a great album I mean I love it it was him changing things up again because the live experience comes around obviously they tore that album fairly soon afterwards um, there's a new bass player Andy Lewis there's a new drummer Steve Pilgrim the band's changed and it's such a great experience that band live is so amazing but there was this brilliant BBC4 session if you remember this and they played the album they played lots of other tracks there were lots of guests including like Graham Coxon um, Eliza Carthy people like that it was brilliant you get up and play 22 Dreams with Paul and I think it was that guitar you just showed me wasn't it that you plugged in was it? That's a different one actually Guitars that are sort of white and colour, but it's a different one. But yeah, I designed that guitar actually and got it made. It looked really brand new in that film for you because it's brand new. It looks right state now. <laughs> the red jeans are beautiful as well. Oh yeah, I like uh, I like red's my favourite colour. Yeah, red trousers. Yeah, I got away with them then. I, <laughs> I mean, that was a pretty cool gig, I have to say, because the lineup was great, but the songs were great. The band were you know really on fire as well. It was amazing. Actually, the reprise of Twenty Two Dreams that that came from us because that came back from when we were in the session doing it. We finished the end of the song and then I just started playing that thing and brought it back and Lewis and Billy joined in and that, that's where that came from. Yeah. Did you know who was going to use it from, or not, not no. until you heard the album? No, no. Just that it was a vibe so I just thought I wanted to carry on playing in the studio while we were feeling it. I didn't think it would end up on the record. That's cool. Oh, brilliant. So that live performance was great. How And at what point did you know that he wanted you to come up and actually play with you, the, the band live? I reckon it would have been fairly short notice. It wouldn't have been too long before, you know, and just said we were filming a TV special thing and, and would you come and play the song? And I was like, yeah, of course I would. I'd love to. So yeah, it was a great thing. I just remember getting a cab down to Shepherd's Bush and just playing the song and you know I remember sitting chatting to Graham there and, and Gem was there as well you know because I, I knew them a little bit because Gem's a good friend of a friend of mine and Graham I knew because he used to buy stuff in the guitar shop so I knew Graham a little bit I sold him a few things when I went to <laughs> I love it. There was also um, a lot of people have mentioned, so I mentioned the fact that we were chatting, a lot of people mentioned, oh, ask him about the Paul Weller jukebox CD. And I'd forgotten about this. I don't know if this rings any bells at all. So this was Uncut magazine. Would have been the same year, I think, November that year. You know, you get the CD on the front of the cover of the magazine. There was Fleet Foxes, Mother Earth, Matt Dayton's been on the podcast, Robert Wire, and Little Barry on there with a track called Pay to Join. And so many people were like, oh, that was so cool. That's such a cool track. To ask him about that track and ask him about how it got on the CD. I'm not sure if you know either anything about the CD. 
how we got on the CD. Maybe just Paul liked the song, which was, you know, which was cool. But that song was just a song that was written around the time writing songs for our second record. And that's one that I wrote in, uh, wrote in a flat. I was living in Camden at the time. Sort of chalk. But so between Camden and Morning, I used to live on Morning Terrace in Camden. And I wrote it in the flat there, I think. And it was, it was just part of the group of songs. That was the last track on that second record. Actually. That's right, yeah. There was a track on it, I think, with um, Pete Molinari, who some people have mentioned as well. So Allotman Slim said, I love the track that Mr. Cadigan did with Pete. I have a feeling that Paul Weller is a fan of him as well. Is that true? Yeah, I don't know about the Pete and Paul connection, but I first met Pete again in, in the guitar shop, I think, because he used to come in there. But um, also we had mutual friends and some of my friends have played in Pete's band. And yeah, Pete asked us to play on a couple of things. I played on that song called Hang My Head in Shame and a few other things on his album and did a few sort of uh, sitting in live things with Pete, you know, just getting up to play a song. A couple of times when he did a, a gig somewhere, I did a few in London and one in, played Chatham Town Hall in Kent as well. I got and played with him there, yeah. He's a local gig. Tell me through that. So that, that idea of playing somebody else's gigs. Because Paul did it recently on a Villagers gig that I went to where you're you're getting up, you're plugging in, you're playing one song and then you're clearing off home again. But like, how does that feel? Like, are you nervous about it? Is there things you obviously can't do beforehand? You have to kind of keep some time for it? Yeah, I mean, it can be. Some of those things can be... I mean, I've done it a few times with different people. It's, it's always great, you know, because you get to play with people you like playing with so, and you like the songs. So, But yeah, a fair amount of it is just winging it. Sometimes you get a chance to run through some of that sound checks. Sometimes you don't. So you just get up and, you know, do your best, really. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, you know. I quite like it. But yeah, sometimes it's a bit, you know, you fly off to see your pants a bit. Yeah, it's always nice as a, an audience member, I have to say, when you're there and the gig's going and then somebody, they, they announce somebody and they come and plug in. You're like, oh, who's that? Oh, brilliant. It just adds something, a different dimension to it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, because I've also done a few gigs where I've been playing in someone's band and, and then a guest comes on as well. And it's great. Yeah, I've been lucky to have a few guests come on stage as well while I've been doing a gig. Now, we should talk about Wake Up The Nation. So this is um, Paul's next album. Couldn't be any more different, really, to 22 Dreams. Yeah. And 2010, this brilliant album. I saw Paul five nights in a row at the Royal Albert Hall around that time and supporting that album. And it was just, I loved that, loved that album. But it opens with Moonshine, which is an absolute banger. And you're on guitar. Andy Crofts is on bass. Bev Bevan on drums, one of the original members of The Move and ELO, for goodness sake. I mean, that's so cool. Can you take me through that session for that song? Well, I've got to be honest, those guys weren't there. They'd already done the track when I was going oh, down. damn it. <laughs> so it was me and Paul and Charles, as far as I can remember, in the studio. The track was already down when I went in there and played on those two tracks. I did them in a day. And I hadn't heard the tracks before I got there. They said, oh, yeah, we're getting good sounds using this. Paul had this huge old Marshall stack amplifier, like a sort of late 60s, early 70s amplifier. And it was all done through that, sort of like, which wasn't an amp I expected to see at Paul's studio. <laughs> it was, you know. It was purple as well. They're quite rare, I think. But right. yeah, so the guitars were done through that. It made quite a noise, yeah. And what was the brief? I mean, was it just pop down where well, it would be nice to meet up or was it pop down where we want you to play on something? If you could check with Paul, he could probably tell you better. But I, I got a feeling with that track, he was pretty easy. So just put something down, you know, just try some stuff. It was quite open, really. Always has been. You know, it wasn't like, I need you to do this. Because sometimes when you do a session, that's what people are after, mm. you know. Can you do something like this? Or, or sometimes you do a session for someone... And there's already something there. Can you replace this or we'll do a, something based on that? But pretty open, I think, as far as I can remember. And at that yeah. time, a lot of the stuff was also an intersonic kicks was also like they were chopping things up. They were starting to use pro tools and things like that. So there are all yeah. these kind of layers on the songs, like you say. So, so you're not necessarily all in the studio together playing live like you were in 22 Dreams. No, no, because uh, I mean, if 22 Dreams had gone like uh, the original plan was, you know, that was going to be probably chopped up as well but that just happened to be a live cut when I played on the other sessions for Paul the tracks were already down so it wasn't like a, a band tracking it was just me coming down for an overdub you know? well it's nice that you opened the album you closed the album as well so yeah Two Fat Ladies was the other song which is um, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. you played bass on that as well didn't you yeah 
Yeah, I think I did. I remember Paul playing bass at one point as well on one of the tracks or having a go. But yeah, I have played bass occasionally on records. I've done a few bit of bass for Evan Collins sometimes as well. I should also mention this amazing gig around that time, which was A Night with Annie Nightingale, who's, and this was Radio 1. So this is marking her 40th year on Radio 1, which is a remarkable, yes. an amazing radio presenter. Made of L Studios, it's night of live music, which like, there's Fat Boy Slim, um, there's um, I Blame Coco, there's Titchy Strider and Primal Scream which there's a big connection with you and Primal Scream. You've played with Primal Scream a lot and special guest wanders up Paul Wellis. It's the other way around that time round. Yeah. How did the Primal connection come about? How did you get to play with those guys and become part of that mixed life? I think there was a couple of reasons. It's the guitar shop connection. Yeah, Andrew Innes used to come in the shop, so I got to know him a little bit. And then I met Bobby a few times as well because he would come in. Also, a friend of mine, who's, there's a Paul connection, Mark Nelson was good friends with Bobby. I got to know Mark quite well for a while. I think Mark might have put in a word to Bobby. We're looking for a guitar player. Mark made a big difference on that. But also I used to bump into Bobby quite a bit. And then I moved into a flat that was near to where Bobby lived. And I used to bump into him a bit sometimes, taking his son for a walk in the morning, push chair. And we just chat, you know, one thing led to another. And I ended up around Bobby's house one day and we were drinking tea and just ended up playing acoustic guitars around his kitchen table, just singing songs and stuff. And then he gave me a call a few weeks or a month later or something said, look, we're looking for a guitar player for some gigs and we've got a new record finished and it's coming out. And, and he said, do you fancy coming down for rehearsal and playing a few songs? And I said, yeah, sure. And he said, look, I'm going away. He said, I'll leave a CD under my dustbin. <laughs> Six songs on it. And I, I went and got the CD. I learned the songs and went to their studio. I had a play with them the week after. Love that. That was songs that weren't yet released. Yeah, it was songs off Riot City Blues. Yeah, it wasn't any old songs. We didn't play any of right. the old songs. So this is like, <laughs> under, under this dustbin is songs that are not yet out there. I love that. Country <laughs> Girls in it and oh, wow. dolls and things like that. Wow. And how much do you know about Paul rocking up? Rocking up excuse the pun, that's a terrible pun, but rocking up to play on rocks. Yeah, I, th- I don't know if I knew before that or not, but they said, oh, Paul's can do it with us. We were like, great. Yeah, because it was Paul and Kevin Shields, so it was four guitars. That's right. And Kevin had played on Wake Up the Nation as well, hadn't they? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, right. So, four yeah. guitars. Wow. God, that sounded amazing. Well, obviously, and, and, you know, produced some of their stuff as well. There's a, an old connection with them. Bob and Andrew big, big fans of Paul's, anyway. For... God, that must have sounded immense. Yeah, soundtrack was great because you went across the stage from stage right. So, you had Innis on the right and he can make a racket. So, you got Innis with this, he's had this old amplifier for years. It's hell of a sound. So, there was him. Then there was Paul. There's Darren's drums, there's Manny on bass, then there's me, then there's Kev. So we do this sound shit right there, and the BBC engineer's like, okay, can we test the first guitar? I'm like, so Andrew plays <laughs> and they just like, oh my God. And then they're like, um, okay, Paul, can you do your guitar? And then you see the engineers are like, right, okay. And then they do the drums. And then they're like, uh, okay, can we have bass? You know, and then Manny plays and they're just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then they do me and they're like, yeah, yeah. And then last is Kevin, you know, Kevin plays a bit and they were just like, wow, there's like, they would say there's some, I just don't think they could handle it at all, you know, especially <laughs> It's like, oh, there's some weird, can you do anything about that? It's just so loud. And and, and Kevin just said something like, he said, it isn't actually loud. It, it just sounds like you think it's loud or something. Like, oh, it, just sounds like, it was a great answer. But yeah, it was, it was a brilliant sound. I, I will put the YouTube video up on the show notes for this podcast. So people, if they haven't seen it, can watch that video of that performance because it's, um, yeah, it's it's incredible. I think we did the Beatles song, It's All Too Much as well. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That was filmed. We definitely did two songs. 
Right. I'm pretty sure we did it all too much from the Yellow Submarine. Oh, that must be out there somewhere on some kind of bootleg or BBC something yeah. hidden in an archive. Maybe the audio or something, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. A couple of years later, there was this amazing gig, which um, I wanted to ask you about as well, because it's quite unique. Although they are doing concerts there again this year, which is Jodrell Bank. Do you remember this gig? So this was well alive. And I think support was Graham Coxon, who most listeners will know from Blur, and you mentioned your guitar shop, mate. But also, obviously, a huge guitar- uh, solo artist in his own right. Baxter Drury and Little Barry were part of the lineup as well. And it's like in the shadow of this amazing telescope that's there in this observatory. That does sound familiar, although I haven't got much of a memory of it. I do know the name, and it does ring a bell, but I can't remember much about that gig. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up now. That, that's intriguing. But yeah, I do remember, I think there was a gig that we both, that we did with Paul and Graham that was at Hammersmith that was like a charity gig, maybe for the Haiti thing or something as well at one point. I think I went to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the first thing. I thought. I think the Coral did it as well, maybe. Yeah. Now, a lot of listeners to this podcast will know you not least from maybe the Weller Connections, but also from the theme tune to Better Call Soul. I mean, how did that come about? That's a TV show. I mean, I have to be honest, I'm still only three episodes into Breaking Bad. I've not yet got through that, so I've not watched it, but I'm aware of the song. So well, take me through how that came about, that connection, and how you actually got that gig. Cause that's, that's remarkable. We got contacted by the music director who was working on the series, a guy called Thomas Golovich, who's based in LA. And he contacted us because he was a fan of the band. Really liked a song about us called Why Don't You Do It? He said he was working on this TV series and they were looking for a theme to be at the start of each episode. My manager, Rich, said, would you speak to Thomas on Skype or whatever it was at the time? So I speak to him like we're speaking now. So there's Thomas and he's like, uh, he said, so you've seen Breaking Bad, right? And I had to go like, no. <laughs> like, I was the only person who hadn't seen it. Like everyone else was watching it. No, I was just saying. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. But um, so, so he said, right, here's what happens. And he gives me like a 10 minute version or five minute version of what happens. And he said, this is the prequel. Yeah, we're looking for a 20-second theme that we can cut dead on 20 seconds and then it goes to each episode. And he said, we really like someone, why don't you do it? Could you do something in that kind of vein? And this was a Friday afternoon. I was like, okay, when do you need some ideas by it? He said, could you give us a few different ones? Uh, yeah, when do you need it by it? So Monday? I just went, yeah. We finished the call and I was like, oh, okay. So I said to my girlfriend, oh, you know, we're doing stuff this weekend. I was like, I've got this thing, you know. And she was, she was all right about it. She was cool about it. So, And then I called up Virgil, our drummer, and said, we've got this can you get together in the studio on Monday oh yeah the other thing I said to Thomas I said you, so you want some different variations of that kind of thing he said yeah I said how many do you want he said you do me 17 <laughs> like yeah okay I just said yes so I sat there with a laptop all weekend just writing little variations on that kind of vibe you know 17 then, is such an odd number to pick though I don't know why he said, but he did say 17 so I yeah. then Virgil hadn't heard them so I meet with Virgil in the rehearsal studio, which had a, had a basic recording set up in it that he had a share in with his friends. So we went in there on the Monday afternoon. I'd written them all because they were 20 seconds each, and a lot of them similar BPM. We just went in and smashed through a lot of them and made demos of 17 and mixed them because they were quick to mix because they were 20 seconds. So we managed to do it, and then Virgil sent them off that evening, Monday evening. We sent Thomas had 17 in his inbox. We didn't hear anything for about a week. He gets back to us and said, they're great. He said, we've got other people writing for this as well, pitching for it. And we thought, oh, yeah, we thought that might be the case. He said, look, we think they're great. Um, can you do some more? I was like, yeah, OK. Uh, how many do you want? He said, 12. So I did another 12. And we did the same thing over the weekend. And then on the Monday, went back in. We did the 12, mixed them. Virgil sends them off. So they had 29 by this point. And we didn't know if we were going to get it because there's other writers pitching for it, including the guy who'd written a lot of the other music for the series. People are more established, you know. And yeah, and then later on we found out they picked one of ours, you know. They picked number seven out of the ones that we'd uh, sent them out the first slot. And we couldn't believe it. We were really, really chuffed and in shock, really. Yeah. At, a, at a which point does it, I mean, 
What's, what, I've got so many questions about this, honestly. Um, so obviously, there's then the show hits. It's massive. It's you know, it's a huge, big success. Did you sit down and take me through that for the first time you saw it as part of the TV show? Did you sit down for the premiere and wait for your bit at the beginning? Yeah. Well, they sent us. I think they might have sent us like sort of rough cuts of the intro. So we got to see a few things with our music put to it before. But, you know, it was really down to the wire, I think. I don't know if it was just a decision was made or the final sort of cuts were done. But we didn't find out that they'd chosen our theme for it until something like three weeks before the first episode was aired on AMC and Netflix. Or Sorry, Netflix. It's an AMC series on Netflix. So they were right down to the wire there. And, you know, which you can imagine what it's like when you're putting tv series together i didn't have netflix at the time so i don't know i saw it but yeah we did get to see it and you know it was such a good series as well that was the thing that made it so so cool to be part of it was such a brilliant series so well written so well shot and the actors were amazing you know it's such an addictive series you know it's sort of been glued to i can't wait for it because the next series is going to come out it's the final one and that'll take you up to where breaking Bad story begins so my plan is to watch it in order i hadn't thought about that because yeah because it's a prequel there's no reason why you couldn't start with that one and run through and then do breaking bad right yeah right. that's so not occurred to me yeah yeah yeah. of course <laughs> which i don't know if that'll be landing this year or not i think they were filming it last year and what was the decision because there's a long version of that as a song now right so did you then go okay well that's the 20 seconds that, that that can lead into something bigger well that actually came from thomas he was like he was saying do you want to turn this into a song said because we will do a soundtrack album for the from the first season i thought yeah that's a great idea you know so i said well if you got any idea when the soundtrack album is going to be released and they were like oh you know you, you won't need to do it for a couple of months you know at least it won't be needed yet and i thought well that gives us some time to think about it and but then after about a month he, he emailed rich and said have you guys got that song <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit so i had to go and write it really quickly and we managed to pull it together pretty quick i you know i, I went down to my mate's rehearsal studio and borrowed that for a few days and came up with a song and then Similar thing, we, we made a recording of it very quickly and we, we were never fully happy with that recording. So the version that came out on their soundtrack album was different to the one that came out on our album, Death Express. We actually did it again for that. We had to turn that around pretty quick as well. But sometimes the challenge for that is quite good, you know. I mean, everything seems very, very fast. And that's similar to Paul, actually, and how Paul's been working. Certainly in recent years, like in the last 10 maybe 15 years now, but he's talked about that. It's a you know, very speedy process in terms of making an album, making a record. Well, he's incredibly prolific. I mean, I'm pretty sure that some of the sessions, I think the last session I did for him, I'm sure he was already kicking around songs that were for his next record while we were finishing off that one. Because I'm sure at one point he said to his engineer, Charles, he was just like, Charles, can you just press record? I just want to get this down. You know, so he's already thinking about what was next. You know, whereas some people, it takes them a lot longer. Some people prefer to spend time crafting something. Some people like the initial, you know, whatever the initial sort of uh, moment creates, really, because some people think that's the purest thing. There's, there's no right or wrong, really. There's, there's merits in both. But mm. it's interesting when you work with lots of different people, seeing how people work. You know? And it's great as a fan because you're always getting new material from Paul. Whereas I can't imagine if, I don't know, if Kate Bush was my favourite artist. I do love Kate Bush, don't get me wrong. But you're waiting like 15 years for the next album, you know. Yeah, although I'm sure that can generate a, a lot of interest. Although, yeah, it must be excruciating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes people being absent or being on hiatus for a while can create a lot of intrigue, can't it? And sometimes he, you know, create a new fan base as well. But yeah, hats off to Paul, though. He's constantly working, constantly moving. And the couple of connections I wanted to dig into. So True Meanings, I think maybe was the album you were talking about. So there's a track called Old Castle, which you played lead yeah. guitar on. I mean, again, another corker of an album, very, very different again, mainly acoustic and, and stuff. Was that another one where you were invited down last minute and the song was already yeah. in place? Or? Yeah, I just caught the train down. I think it was picked up from the station and just did the track. Yeah. And I think it was just us. I don't know if anyone else was there. Maybe Andy was there across, possibly. 
I was playing to the track that was already there and they just gave us a couple of run-throughs and it needed something mellow. You know, I don't know if the original idea was something more acoustic, but I sort of played something more electric, mellow. But they seemed to like it. I mean, I literally did a few takes, so I thought like I was working it out and they were like, great, we've got it. And I was like, hang on, I don't know what I'm doing yet. <laughs> they obviously heard something in it. I was just, you know, I would keep going until I sort of had something more crafted, you know, but maybe they liked the fact it was winged. Yeah. I love that it's kind of like quick, 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 done. It's on, oh, yeah, we recorded it. You didn't even know we were recording it almost, and it's on the album. Sometimes this good stuff comes out of that. You know, I remember doing a session at Torag Studios with someone in the last couple of years, and Liam just said, like, said, well, guys, just play through the song. I'll just get some levels. And then we played it, and he just came out the door and said, yeah, we've got it. But there is something in that when you're not thinking about it too much, you, you know. There's no red light fever because we didn't think yeah. we were recording. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose sometimes, yeah, you can. There's a danger of overthinking something. Right? Yeah, and sometimes you can pass a point by doing too many takes as well. You can sort of think you're perfecting it, but actually, you've already done it. I, I used to overdo things in the old days, especially with guitar overdubs. Think you know it's not right. I've got to keep going. You realise that each time you're doing it, you're getting worse. But you're getting further away from the spirit of it. And you've actually done it in the first couple somewhere. You know, I try and remind myself of that when I'm working now. That's a great little lesson. Um, I love the yeah. idea that there's obviously something going, like when he's making an album or making a track, there's something goes through his head and he goes, do you know who I need on this? It's, it's Barry. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not something you could ever imagine when you're a kid listening to the records in your bedroom at your folks' house. You know, you, I couldn't even imagine working with and meeting a whole bunch of people that I've been fortunate to to meet. You know, it's, um, it's quite mind-blowing, really. It's things that you, uh, yeah, you feel very honoured to have been part of. And obviously he's a guitarist, right? So there must be things that you give that others can't or don't. He could easily play loads of instruments himself on his albums, but I guess he's got the, you know, he's always going to do what's best for the music. So it, that that goes above the ego. Maybe some people wanted to do everything themselves, you know. But then again, other bands have worked with like that, like Prime Scream or whatever, you know, they've always got people in. You know, I remember, you know, when I started working with them, the album they'd just done, they got Will Sargent from the Bunnymen in to play guitar one tune. Well, you know, they, they get people in or, or they will do what's right for the record. You know, that's what you've got to do. You've got to always try and think what's going to be for the best for the best of the music, really. You know, you've got to try and make the best record you can, however, however that needs to be done. And knowing what those people can offer, like, so like I mentioned Bev Bevan, it's like knowing that track, Moonshine, would actually, what the drummer on this needs to be Bev, that's what would work, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is, um, you know, because also other people I've worked with, like, you know, I've worked quite a bit with Edwin Collins, you know, Edwin would do the same thing. You get certain people in on certain records. It's just whatever's going to be right and going to be best for the music, and sometimes it's an interesting part of the story, you know, getting people in. Obviously, Paul's a great guitar player, but yeah, he's, you know, he might ask me to do a few things or, or you know, Kev Shields played on a few things, didn't he? One of the things I love about Paul over the years is these radio sessions as well. And somebody mentioned, I mentioned the American radio session that you're part of as well, but there was one on Radio 2. This would have been around a Kind Revolution album time with Ken Bruce, The Piano Room. You were part of the lineup for that, which was brilliant. And they did, you did this amazing version of Ever Changing Moods with you on the guitar as well, which was so wicked. Oh, that was a lot of fun. I, yeah, I think, uh, I think I did that because I was, I think Steve was on tour or something. I think he had another commitment. So. So yeah, I got a message from Paul's management or Paul, would, I think Paul texted me actually, he said, would you be up for doing it? I was like, yeah, of course I would. And the original idea was to do it acoustic, everyone playing acoustic. And we did a few rehearsals like that and I just sort of said to Paul, I said, what about me just playing through a really little amp, an electric, you know? And he was just like, yeah, cool, you know. I think I felt like I could, I could have added something a little bit more interesting to it with that, you know? So I just borrowed Paul's guitar and, and yeah, just played along you know, with just with a little practice amp, it was just a nice vibe. Yeah, I really enjoyed that session. It was great to play over changing moods. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. those those studios are pretty tiny. So there's quite a lot of you crammed in there, aren't there? 
Yeah, it was a bit cosy, yeah. But it was it was really good though. I quite like being closer to all the musicians. Same same as setting up on stage, really. Although you know, there's only three of us in the band. I like setting up close to the band because we made the mistake years ago, we did a festival in Japan and it's this really wide stage where there's three of us, so we just set up really far and was, you didn't feel like you're in the same band as your friends. No? <laughs> And also, I saw the Lars playing at a festival where they all set up really close together, and it just gave them this focus, you know. So after seeing that, we always set up close anyway. So I like sitting close with everybody, you know. That's why rehearsals and recording sessions can be more vibey is when you're in closer proximity. It's more of an atmosphere, I think. This has been so great, Barry. I've loved chatting with you. There's a couple of projects I want to talk about before you go of yours. So obviously, the past couple of years has been really tough with COVID, with live concerts cancelled, with Brexit and touring Europe really, you know, very, very difficult now. But we've had a couple of albums for you over the past, what would it be now, four months, five months? So the new album from Little Barry with Malcolm Cat. So I'd love to understand how, the story behind that and how that came about. And then this year, the Year of the Dog soundtrack. So we'll talk about that in a sec as well. Tell me about this latest album with Malcolm. I first met Malcolm when I just moved to London in 2000, because we those early 45s, the board of it, we were on the same label as Malcolm, which was Start Reality, which was a subsidiary label of Jasmine Records, run by Jasmine Gerald, who was reissuing and licensing rare sort of funk and jazz 45s. And he was also doing other reissues, maybe compilations. And he was also selling second-hand records as well. He had quite a successful thing doing that. And Gerald wanted to do a label with original artists. And Malcolm was playing in his own band called Soul Destroyers. He were like sort of heavy funk, raw heavy funk bands, you know. So I met Malcolm in Gerald's office. Malcolm also used to do some work for Gerald, helping him track down musicians in the States, you know, to license these rare 45s. So trying to track down the original musicians, you know, to get permission to license Stuff and they used to go on record buying trips as well to the States. And so I first met Malcolm then. And when I saw the Soul Destroyers play, I think the first time I saw him was at the Jazz Cafe. I was just absolutely blown away by Malcolm's drumming. I've never heard anyone play drums like that. Still haven't. And out of all those bands trying to do the raw heavy funk thing, they were, for me, they were just the greatest. They had it. They had that swing. They had the swagger. They had the danger with it, you know, and the sort of rawness. So I was always massively impressed with Malcolm's musician. I sort of lost touch with Mal for years because I guess our paths went in different ways and I knew he was doing the heliocentrics by this point and uh, I bumped into AD, his guitar player who was in the Soul Destroyers and also in the heliocentrics bumped into AD one day in Brick Lane and he's like man you should check out Malcolm's studio so I went down to see Malcolm one day and we just hung out and hadn't seen each other for over 10 years and just you know chatted for a couple of hours he played me a bunch of stuff he'd done in the studio and it all sounded amazing I was just so impressed and I said, oh, do you fancy doing something one day, you know? And we're like, yeah, why not? Why don't we try and do something? This was before our drummer Virgil passed away, you know? And I just thought, well, maybe we do a side project or something. And obviously then the awful things happened. We lost Virgil. Virgil died and we'd just done that album, the Dev Express album, and Virgil died. And then, you know, we were all over the place for a while. We didn't know what we wanted to do. But then when me and Lewis started talking about trying to do something again, we thought, well, we should go in the studio and just try a few ideas because I had a few songs. And maybe we try something with Malcolm and just put no pressure on it, see what it's like going back in the studio again. And the plan was to maybe try and do maybe a single or a 12 inch if we had four songs or an EP or something. And it went pretty well. And we came up with more than that. And we really liked working with Mal. And, uh, you know, he produced it and mixed it. We really loved what he did with it. And then, you know, so we wanted to put it out. And it felt good to be back in the studio again. It felt good to be working with Mouse. So. How do I pronounce the name of the tongue? So I'm going to fuck this up. Because so, I would say Quartermass, but that doesn't yeah, sound Quartermass, especially Americans, it's Quatermass 7. I think because Malcolm's studio is called the Quatermass Sound Lab after the Quatermass books or the films or TV show, or whatever, you know, Quatermass in the Pit and those movies. Right, okay. 
So because it's the Quatermass Seven, because it was seven songs done at Mouse Studio. Um, a lot of people say Quatermass. That's what an idiot would say. I me. Are there plans to tour this record? Are there plans to go out on the road? With we, did, we did before gigs last year. Oh. Malcolm. So yeah, we would like to do some more. Plan is to do some more recording with Mal as well. Although we'll still do some recording as Little Barry as well to do both things. But yeah, we had a great time working with Mal. We've actually been in Mal's studio doing other projects as well recently with myself, Lewis and Tony Coote, who plays drums when he plays Little Barry now. We backed our friend, uh, Matt Burr, has got a band called the Black Delta movie. We've just done an album in there, in Malcolm's studio, Malcolm producing. So, so yeah, I've done a few different things in Malcolm's studio now. Tony's name rings a bell. Is there well a connection with Tony? Yeah, there is, because Tony's played with Steve Crowe. And also, Tony did some gigs playing drums for Ocean Colour Scene as well. And also, P.P. Arnold. Tony's on the, some of the Pat Arnold stuff and did the tour with Steve. So, so yeah, they're old, old friends. And I met Tony from doing sessions with other people. We were on the same sessions a few times, and that's how we became friends. So we met years ago. Love it. Right, okay. And then tell me about the Year of the Dog. So this was beginning of this year. This is a documentary that was filmed during lockdown, which is the story of homeless people and their pets, this documentary, and, and you provided the soundtrack to it. Yeah, this came about because Simone Butler plays bass in Primal Scream. She's friends with the director, Paul. Yeah, the film is about homeless dog owners and sort of the stigma around that, you know, what people's preconceived ideas might be about homeless people having dogs. But also there's an amazing charity called Dots, which is Dogs on the Streets, which uh, provide care and support for homeless dog owners, helping people get rehoused. Just basic support, like sort of food and medicine for the dogs. And it's run by this amazing woman called Michelle Clark and her team. You know, it's, it's sort of gone national now. I think it was London-based originally, I think, or, or South-based in the South. But yeah, it's an amazing story. They started filming in 2020, of course, and then the pandemic hit. So this took on a whole different part of the story, you know. But I've always wanted to do some music for a film or this was for a documentary and you know, TV. So it was an opportunity to do that. And I really enjoyed it. It's a great film and it was a great thing to be part of. So, yeah, I was working on that with, during lockdown last year. You know, I started work on it about this time last year and then started recording it properly. And finally, in I think it was April to May. So the soundtrack was finished by the end of May. Were you working with the visuals? Were you working with the footage? Had you seen yeah. stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I was being sent rough cuts by Paul, the director. So he would sometimes say to me, we need a, pu- a piece of music here between, you know, and you'd have the times. So, but I'd be getting sent rough cuts, the, the new rough cuts fairly often. So sometimes pieces of music would have to change in length. So you'd have to be trying to make things that could be adapted a little bit. Uh, you know, it's an hour long documentary. So, I mean, some bits of music you only need. It's a really different way of working because you only need something for maybe sometimes as little as 15 seconds. There was another scene where we needed a piece of music for four minutes. So it was quite interesting working to a different brief rather than just thinking, that, uh, you know, I'm writing songs. And I really enjoyed it, actually, because you get a chance to explore things that you don't, you wouldn't think of when you're writing your own music. Same with when you play on other people's records or play in other people's bands. You learn a lot because you learn different ways of working, either different lineups of the band, different song structures, different sounds, different approaches. It's quite healthy, actually, because one thing you, you don't want to do when you've been making records for a long time, is, is keep slipping into the same formulas, you know. People can, same chord patterns, same sounds, same tempos and stuff, you know. Trying to sort of work with different people and listen a lot really helps, I think. Helps refresh things. I've read a lot of things. Paul's talked a lot about collaboration and how much he loves collaborating. It sounds from what you're saying there that you enjoy that as well. As much as locking yourself away and working on bits and then presenting them to others is appealing too, but you like the collaboration side of things. Yeah, because it brings out different stuff. I, I mean, I do need to make my own music and I, I you know, I always feel the need that I need to write my own things and make them with my band, with Lewis or Tony or Lewis and Malcolm or whoever. I need to do that, but 
I do really enjoy also sitting in on other sessions or playing in other people's bands, you know, like in more recent years, you know, I worked with Steve Mason on his album, doing the live stuff with Matt Johnson with the, the, you know, they were great things to do. Playing with other people, playing on other people's songs, it brings out other sides of you that you maybe wouldn't explore in your own music because it maybe it's more relevant playing certain ways on other people's stuff. And also it brings things out you wouldn't expect. I really do like working with other people. I do like playing, I do like singing my own songs and writing my own songs, but sometimes I quite like to sit in and play guitar, you know. One final question from the fans. So Duncan Essex says, can you ask him how he developed his guitar style? It seems to be with the lightest of touch. Ah, that's very kind to say. I think it's just been a long journey of just sort of different influences and different interests, really. And I think it's only more recently I've started to become more original, really. But but it's a, it's a constant thing that I'm I guess you're always, it's always evolving without you knowing, but also there's always the desire to try and be more unique at the same time. Some stuff has a light touch, some stuff is pretty clumsy. I think I'm quite a clunky sort of guitar player, really. I'm not, I'm not exactly very slick, you know, but I, I like so many different styles. I'm a fan of so many different records and so many different guitar players that I guess, you know, you might focus on certain things that interest you at certain times, you know, so I'm, I'm quite happy just to, try and delve into other people's styles and try and learn a bit of it. And maybe that goes into the melting pot with everything else. You know, I'm really into a lot of stuff from my early days. It was, I guess, the sort of late eighties indie thing opened the door for me with the Stone Roses, my sister's record collection, the Happy Mondays, groups like Spaceman 3, and then American groups like Dinosaur Jr., Mudhoney, Puzzy, sort of noisy stuff, the Hypnotics, I liked as well, British brands, you know, things like that. And then from there, you learned about maybe the bands that influenced them, and it's just been a constant journey, you know, a lot of blues and rhythm and blues. And I like a lot of stuff, you know, from the Stooges to Chet Atkins, you know, all kinds of things, really. So I guess it might all go in there somewhere. There's always things you wish you could do. That you're working on you know you'll find one of the questions i'm going to ask you in a minute is something i always ask on the podcast and one of the things that people answer often is that i should talk to paul about music because that's what he loves and it seems to me that that's something the two of you obviously not just making music but the being fans of music is something you'll have in common with paul that's something you talk about a lot the tunes that you're hearing and what you love at the minute and all that stuff yeah i mean i don't know if i've had a huge amount of time to sit down and talk to paul about music but i love talking to people about music i mean it's a constant obsession and infatuation you know it's probably had the biggest impact on my life for anything you know i mean obviously there's people like your family and your friends and loved ones and stuff but but it's like you know music it might sound corny but it it absolutely has changed my life no question about it you know it completely has and yeah i'm, I'm constantly fascinated by by music and not just guitar music but you know obviously the guitar is the way i channel it i suppose but constantly fascinated by the guitar obsessed with it and guitar culture that's never got and never ever gone away I'm playing for quite a long time now you know but i'm still i'm still infatuated with it love it how many guitars have you got more than some people but not as many as others <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a great answer I, I mean yeah i could get by with a few less but i'm not too bad <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's always things you like, but there is sometimes a worry that if you end up doing too many, I always get this thing, if you end up too many, would you lose something, you know? There's always something about when you see someone that just got the one guitar, you know, and how much they get out of that, you know. But to be honest, even if you're lucky to have a few, there tends to be, I mean, because I do a lot of different stuff. This is where I try and justify it. Some definitely lend themselves to different styles of music or different scenarios if you, if you play different styles, you know. But, you know, even if you're lucky to have several, there's there's always a, a small number that you tend to use the most. And I'd mm. say that same thing with Paul, really. And a lot of guitar players tend to be like that, really. They, or, or you have ones that you use more for, for gigging, you know. There's certain ones that work better for live because, you know, they're reliable and you know they're going to work 
Whereas you can get away with sometimes using the sort of stranger and one kill ones in the studio, but they might not be good for taking out and tour. You know? so yeah, I've got a few and there's still a few things I'd like, but I don't think piling up a guitar collection doesn't necessarily make you a better guitar player. Well, I'll stick to the one for now. And thanks for your advice. And I'll come back to you in a year's first time. Of, and... First of many ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, this has been so delightful, Barry. I look forward to seeing what's next. I look forward to seeing live again. I look forward to hearing what's next. I've got two final questions for you before you go. Um, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the star council or solo. What are you going to have? Away from the numbers. Oh, good choice. Why that one? Um, well, he's, he's written so many good songs and he's still writing good songs now. But I just remember I had a good friend, my mate Matt Mead, who who was really into, who's still really into Paul, really into the jam. And when he started getting into the jam, we were probably like 16, 17. A lot of us used to go record shopping in Nottingham on a Saturday afternoon. And we used to go to Rob's Records, which is still there. This amazing shop run by Rob, who's been there for years. It can be absolute chaos in their parts of records. And, and yeah, we made math. And he said, Media, he was really into the jam. And I was just flicking through some secondhand records and a Beatle copy of In the City was in there for like two quid, maybe less. So I just bought it and I got it home. And just from putting on the first track article, straight away, I was just like, yes, this is what I want to hear right now. But Away From The Numbers was a track that stuck in my mind. And interestingly, I heard a radio program around the same time, not long after that. There was a band around at the time called 530, who had a big mod influence, big jam. And the guitar player, Paul Bassett, said uh, Away From The Numbers was his teenage anthem. So I always remembered that. But, but yeah, I just loved that song. I loved that record, just the impact of that record. So I guess that that record had a big effect for me. I had a cheap, I had this old copy of a Rickenbacker by Shaftesbury when I was a kid that looked, didn't sound anything like a Rickenbacker, but it looked the part. So I just used to put like the Who on jam in the bedroom for jumping around, you know. Yeah, that, that, I just thought that was such a great song and still do, you know. Beautifully written and very, such a good song written by someone so young, you know. Yeah. Pass off. What kind of impact did Paul's music have on, because you mentioned that time around like the early 90s, what type of impact did Paul's music have on you around that time? So that period of the 90s where he's like got a record deal again after the Star Council, he's, you know, Wildwood, Stanley Road, Heavy Soul, those kind of big albums. Yeah, I really like those records and I just really like seeing him live. And I was a big fan. I mean, Paul's a great musician, a big fan of his guitar playing as well. I love his guitar playing. I think I saw him on Jules Holland with his Epiphone guitar, you know. Powerful guitar imagery as well, you know. These are things that have had the impact on you. Combination of guitars and clothing as well. There was an association with that with bands like the Stone Roses or other people who I was massively into, like Johnny Mars. The association with guitars and clothing, the whole thing and the music, they all sort of went together. But yeah, I just thought he had great songs. Obviously, you know, the singles were the things you heard, like You Do Something To Me and things like that. I thought that was a great song as well. Made me think of Neil Young in some Okay, final question. So, um, purpose of this podcast, Barry, is to talk to amazing people like yourself who've had like, great careers themselves, but connections with Paul that we can dig into on the podcast as well. But the real purpose is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, what should I ask him? Oh, God. I'd have to think about this. But I guess you'll have to think what you want to ask him because he's pretty approachable, you know? Do you think so? Is he because sometimes you get you get the opinion that like back in the day maybe he was a bit of a grumpy old sod and wouldn't want to answer questions, but these days he seems much more chilled, right? Nice to me and, and to us, you know. So I can only speak from my own experience, you know. What was like working with him and we've had a laugh as well sometimes, you know. It's been yeah, it's always been really good natured and inspiring. The fact that he keeps going, that he's that he's himself and he keeps doing it. And the fact he's so prolific, you know, that that's something I take my I can't I can't work at that rate. 
you know, but he can work at that rate credibly, and that's that's really impressive. And just his his desire to keep moving because he could lean on the past way more than he does and be re- and, and be massively successful at it. But you know, he's always moving forward, and and that's what I respect about him. He's true to himself. He's got just as much hunger for it now, if not more, maybe than before. That's massively inspiring. I'd love you to know. know where that comes from. That kind of that motivation, like you say, because that back you could tour the greatest hits for the next twenty years, right? Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. You right. know, if people want to do that, then because I, you know we all know how hard it is. You know, for people to to get their due in creative work, or to be honest, any line of work. So I don't I don't blame people wanting to try and make the most of things. You know, and also you don't know people's situations. You know, so so there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, I respect him for wanting to keep moving forward. I, you know, it's, it's obviously something within him. You know, I think a lot of people feel like they don't have a choice. You know, it's like you have to keep pushing forward because if you don't, you, it's, it's not an option to not do it. Barry, this has been so delightful. Honestly, I've loved spending time with you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, man. Anytime, man. Anytime. Thanks for having us. And uh, if we're doing any shows, I'll let you know. If you can have me um, 17 jingles by Monday, that'd be great. Thanks. Right. I'll get working on it now. <laughs> That story is insane, man. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what can be done. My thanks once again to Barry Cadigan. What a lovely guy and what a super, super talent. Do check out his music. You'll find more information on my show notes for this podcast, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow as well. You can share on your social media channels. It all helps to spread the word and get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Next up on the podcast, we hear from bass player and music producer Ernie McCone, a man who played live in the Paul Weller band during the heavy soul days, and there are lots of lovely connections since then as well. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.